0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about his past and present. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. And with us today is Professor Brian Ulrich, the author of The Medieval Persian Gulf, published by ARC Humanities Press this year. Today we are diving into the captivating world of the medieval Persian Gulf. This book takes us on a voyage through time to explore the rich tapestry of the Gulf's history from its religious and ethnic diversity to its vibrant trade networks. The Persian Gulf today is home to multiple cosmopolitan urban hubs of globalization. This did not start with the discovery of oil. This book narrates the history of the Gulf from the rise of Islam until the coming of the Portuguese, when port cities such as Siraf on the Iranian shores, Sohar uh, in Oman, and Hormuz uh, between the Arabian side and the Persian side of the Gulf were entrepôts uh, for trading pearls, horses, spices, and other products across much of Asia and Eastern Africa. Indeed, products traded there became a key part of the material culture of medieval Islamic civilization, and the Gulf region itself was a crucial remembrance between the Middle East and the world of the broader Indian Ocean. The book also highlights the long-term presence of communities of South Asian and African ancestry, as well as patterns of religious change among Jews, Christians, Zoroastrians, and Muslims that belie the image of a region long, polarized between Arabs and Persians, or Sunnis and Shiites. Professor Brian Ulrich is a professor of history at Schubensburg University. His interests include early Islamic history and the history of the Gulf, and he has published on early Islamic history and worked with the archaeological excavation at Kazuma in Kuwait. He's also the author of Arabs in the Early Islamic Empire, exploring Az tribal identity published by edinburgh university press in 2019 welcome brian to new books in the indian ocean world and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book
0: oh no thank you for having me glad to be here
1: it's our pleasure we first like to learn about the authors so can you please start the talk by saying a few words about yourself that is, where you grew up, where you went to school, and how you became interested in your field of study, and if you would like to mention any influential mentors or books.
0: Um, So I grew up in Quincy, Illinois, which is in the widest part of the American state of Illinois along the Mississippi River. Uh, You know, partway between, it's in the Midwest, uh, between St. Louis and Chicago, that broad expanse. And... I went to college at a place called Quincy University. That was weirdly only four blocks from my house. I tell people that I went to college closer to home than I went to kindergarten, uh, just the way the neighborhood worked out. And while there, I did become a history major after intending to major in English. And they didn't really offer any Middle Eastern history there. Uh, it was They only had three history professors on the faculty. But I had developed an interest in the Middle East through two channels. One is that uh, growing up in the town, I did know some people of, of you know different descents, one of which was Middle Eastern. And it kind of clued me into really the existence of that region. And also, I liked the pre-modern world, uh, more than modern history at that stage. And so I was interested in the Roman Empire, I was interested in um, medieval Europe, and ultimately, at some point, I realized that the medieval Middle East was much more interesting to me than was medieval Europe. I, I want to be careful because I've learned enough about medieval Europe and the modern approaches. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, demean the culture, particularly of late medieval Europe. But it seemed that much more was happening, and the regional connections were much more extensive with uh, the medieval Islamic world than was medieval Europe. And then I had decided I wanted to try to go to graduate school and enter uh, higher education and this was in the late 1990s, I graduated from college in 1999, and I was looking at different fields to go into. And from the history standpoint, uh, the two that were most interesting to me were actually the Roman Empire or the medieval Middle East. And in making my decision, I actually decided to be practical uh, because one of the transferable skills you were going to get, and in those days, uh, Arabic was not widely taught, uh, as it is now, but obviously I would learn Arabic in graduate school. There were programs that would accept you to, to the doctorate without having started Arabic yet or Persian. And I real I, I figured that Arabic would be a more transferable skill than would Latin. <laughs> and so I, you know, it's sort of a, you know, what happens if, if the academic track doesn't work out. And so I focused on the medieval Middle East, and I really haven't looked back in graduate school. Uh, again, you start learning Arabic in graduate school, uh, at least you know, I did, at the University of Wisconsin in those days. And we had a conversation partner who was a native speaker, and my conversation partner was from Oman. And she kind of clued me into uh, the culture of Oman and its seafaring connections and so on. And she, she gave me a little book about it. And this is a part of the region that I hadn't fully realized existed. Um, also there, so my advisor was Dr. Michael Chamberlain. And I also work closely with Dr. David Morgan, uh, who is a historian of the Mongols. Dr. Chamberlain does more Ayubid mamluk stuff. But Andre Vink was there. And so they had a study of the Indian Ocean. And it was in his book, actually, that, uh, or his, 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 the first volume of his Al Hind, The Making of the Islamic World, that really fascinated me. Um, I actually first got interested in the tribe of Elez which became central to my first book, my dissertation, and then later my first book that you mentioned, Arabs in the Early Islamic Empire, because of Andre Vink's interpretation of them as this major commercial diaspora, even though I wound up going in a different direction and not fully agreeing. But um, the, the idea of the Indian Ocean and the Persian Gulf in general never quite left me. And... This even kind of extends to the present nowadays, because uh, even though I entered as a medievalist when I did my kind of travel and graduate school for language programs, I spent a summer in Jordan, a summer in Morocco, a summer in Egypt, uh, and then a couple of years um, elsewhere in the region. I, uh, I That's when I really became seriously interested in the modern world and its history, um, that you know some headline driven stuff but like looking at what was around me seeing all the legacies of you know different historical events and so on uh that that the interest came up to the present and that kind of applied to the gulf as well uh so in terms of background i guess that's my intellectual journey and how it connects to the persian gulf um (laughs) i don't know what to say next
1: uh thank you for sharing all of that it gives us an idea of why you became interested in this time period, but also the region. Mm-hmm. So, moving to the book, you opened the book with an incident that happens in 2003. The American animation studio, DreamWorks, released uh, an, uh, for an intended summer uh, blockbuster, uh, uh, a feature called Sandibad Legend of the Seven Seas. And uh, one movie preview described it as virtuously set in the Mediterranean, and voiced by none but Brad Pitt. Can you elaborate on why the Gulf region has uh, often been uh, misunderstood uh, and how its rich history gets oversimplified in in much of uh, media, but also scholarship? Uh, So how does your survey uh, in this book uh, tries to correct some of these uh, misconceptions and introduces the readers to the nuanced history that uh, forms a precursor to the present gulf.
0: Well, it always surprised me that a book like this didn't exist. We have books on the Indian Ocean as a whole, and we have books on other bodies of water connected, uh, well, to Europe and North America. So you know, you've know, you got the Seas in History series from Rutledge that talks about the North and Baltic seas in, in, in one of its volumes. Uh, But Persian Gulf studies, particularly the pre-modern period, seems to have been neglected. And I think part of the reason is a perception that uh, there aren't as many sources through which to write about it. A lot of what actually is done is via archaeology. Dan Potts, whom I think is currently at the study of the ancient world, is is somebody who has written the occasional book chapter in in general uh, volumes of, of Persian Gulf History, which are mainly edited volumes, um, and I felt like this had to come into existence for that reason. You talk about the Sinbad movie, movie and I think that was partly just kind of uh, you know the particularly the environment of 20 years ago. It was about the same year as the U.S. invasion of Iraq and they may have wanted to to move it to Greece they may have thought that audiences would relate more to ancient Greece or whatever but I actually remember when this was happening and it was like you know man you're completely erasing the heritage of what Sinbad is uh, to connect it to Greece it was just like ridiculous um and I I think that kind of some of that perception is still out there, though there are some other there are some other Sinbad uh, media presentations, like you know films or or TV shows or whatever that have a, a more Middle Eastern setting. Um, but um, you know, in in terms of introducing the Gulf region. Um, I think it's a region and the whole Indian Ocean world in general is ripe for entering more into the the popular uh, consciousness. I know that even in terms of of publishing, you have uh, Shannon Chakraborty's recent book, um, The Adventures of Amina al-Sarafi, which is sort of epic fantasy, swords and sorcery set in the Indian Ocean world. And... I think you know scholarship has gotten a little bit better. I, I noticed you know some books uh, that are written with a modern focus are, are starting to be more attentive to the fact that there is a deeper history to the Gulf's global connections. But it, there is it's still not everywhere. I read a political science book this summer that was published in twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one and it included uh, or the idea that the portuguese arrival to, at hormuz ended the gulfs uh, ended the gulfs isolation from the broader world of globalization or some right. such phrasing that was just completely wrong and i think this comes from the idea that if you look at the particularly on the arabian coast a lot of the cities which dominate the arabian coast dubai abu dhabi kuwait city doha um you know these cities are only a few hundred years old uh you know the 1700s seems to have been an important time in their genesis and so people who focus on countries like the uae like kuwait and so on from a strictly modern perspective Um, often without much history, because so much of the scholarship on the region is focused on on, uh, contemporary politics and sociology and so on. Because those Gulf cities themselves are so new, they don't realize that there is a broader regional heritage that that is kind of like the precursor for like where where does you know the, the existence of Abu Dhabi itself come from? Why are people <laughs> starting a port city uh, here on you know by these salt flats of so the Persian Gulf and and why does it have a mixed uh, Indian Arab population with and Persian population? Uh, so these issues kind of need uh, they just need, I think, more of a push and I think they need to be made more accessible because this is this is a problem you know i talked to somebody who who was you know trying to work on these issues and he found that the region like you know he would have wanted to talk more about the region's earlier history but it was also so fragmented and he wasn't sure how to navigate the maze of different interpretations at different times and references to sources and so on and so this book was conceived as basically what is the what is the current state of our knowledge of the persian gulf with regard to these specific themes of globalization of the diversity point um both the the ethnic diversity and kind of how the religious history unfolded, and to again, just make it just make it more accessible for. Uh, interested readers, both academic readers who aren't themselves scholars of the specific time and place, uh, but also uh, anyone else who, who you know, has it assigned in a course or, <laughs> or or runs across it, you know, living in the Persian Gulf as an expat and wondering if there is, you know, any medieval history to talk about. Uh, it can hopefully introduce uh, these kinds of audiences to, to the region.
1: Yes, indeed. I agree with you that most of the historiography, have shifted uh, our gaze to the early modern and modern periods and partially that because uh, the different national narratives are not invested in the medieval period because it doesn't really connect directly uh, to the, let's say, uh, ethnogenesis of certain states. And the medieval period was uh, mainly being written about by people coming from Islamic studies backgrounds or that uh, interested in uh, sectarian conflicts in the region rather than trying to integrate the the, the history of the gulf in the broader region uh, in the medieval period and you capture that nicely uh, in the introduction when you say those whose image of gulf history is focused on bedouin and fisher folk with small settlements along deserted coast well in fact find those within. They will also, however, find Christian monks pursuing devotions and will-supported monasteries, enslaved people of African origin clearing agricultural land and harvesting crops, small-scale merchants with ambitions of becoming great traders, seafarers spinning y- yarns in cosmopolitan ports, and soldiers of fortune enlisted for defense and conquest. Now, see, as somebody who uh, is from the Emirates, uh, I really did not grow up uh, imagining uh, the past uh, of my own country and region in this way. Uh, it, It seems that we have Islam and then we have uh the words of fredda uh, uh of apostasy basically and then history jumps uh, straight forward to the 1970s uh <laughs> and what happened <laughs> yeah. in between, it's, uh, it's a dark hole basically it's, uh nobody has clue about it um so definitely such a uh, such a survey work is a, a very needed in- intervention and uh, introduction to this period and uh, before we delve into the chapters, I was going to ignore this part, to be honest, because I mm-hmm. feel too much ink has been spelled uh, talking about it. But something happened recently, and we are talking here on the 22nd of August. I don't know if you're following the news, but um, the Iranian uh, foreign minister in, in, in Riyadh and in Saudi, during a press conference, uh, naturally used the word Persian Gulf. Mm -hmm. I was picked on by the Arab media and it it became a trending hashtag on, on X or Twitter. And Mm -hmm. people started debating again for the million times, uh, Mm -hmm. the name of the Gulf and whether it's an Arabian Gulf or a Persian Gulf, and even other names that the Ottomans use or others have used pulling maps and references on this question, which amazes me. I thought, this question would not die, <laughs> and it resists. Uh, it resists being settled. Uh, and uh, you dedicate parts of the introduction to talk about the geography and nomenclature, kind of nomenclature of uh, the, the the Gulf. Um, how do you think historians should approach this question? And doesn't does it really matter, or changes the way we approach uh, the region's history? I think it matters because
0: it matters to people today. I think that, particularly when when people call it the Persian Gulf, which I use, I, I kind of talked about this uh, because I gave sort of a, a history of of how the naming uh, how the naming uh, convention arose that was based on the work of um, Chelsea Mueller, uh, who wrote about the origins of the of the Arab iranian conflict, and then unfortunately I can't quite remember off the top of my head who wrote the article on the earlier naming naming issues. Um, but, uh, in, you know, there's a difference be- with where, where, when modern nationalism comes into play and the label of Persian Gulf is, is taken to mean that this is a Gulf that is somehow owned by um, Iran, that does generate some pushback on the part of uh, Arab states, some of which have definite, you know, territorial disputes over islands and so on, uh, and of course, you know, at the time a lot of this was being generated in the mid twentieth century. Iran also had a claim to Bahrain. Um, so the fact things get used that way is something that does maybe give it some importance because people make it important, basically. Now I thought about this because my goal was to communicate. And so I use medieval Persian golf because in the United States, that is the term that is always used. And I think elsewhere in the Anglophone world, I, I sometimes see Arabian golf more in British and Australian publications, um, but I think Persian Gulf is still known there. So it seemed again, from the standpoint of trying to communicate this to the general public, I had to go with Persian Gulf, Um, but I don't care uh, in the sense of if somebody told me that, well, we want to we want to make a separate edition, for example, this you know won't happen. But if someone were to say, yeah, we want to make a separate edition with the title of "The Medieval Arabian Gulf," I would find that you know <laughs> reasonable. Uh, it's not really where where my interest lies uh, in terms of the book. And again, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the fact that people have strong opinions about it. Um, and I you know, historically, like I say, the the name the name uh, uh, something some version of Bar al Fars or uh, or you know, that is is more common. Um, but it doesn't mean what some people take it mean today. just like you know, uh, when one talks about the Arabian Sea, uh, that's not necessarily a sea that's dominated by Arabs. Um, and so that's kind of where I come down on the great naming controversy. I did notice I was actually in Saudi Arabia. A a few months ago, I took advantage of the new availability of of tourist visas. And I noticed that at some of the museum displays in Riyadh, uh, they actually used the word Persian Gulf in them. Uh, I think this is in the Saudi Arabian National Museum. So (laughs) there's that.
1: Uh, Interesting. Yes. And it's important to take into account... The, the approach also of, of, of people who lived in the medieval period and how they viewed mm-hmm. their geography, it was Persian to them because it will lead to Persia and It was an Indian uh, sea to mm-hmm. them because it will lead them to India or to China or to uh, East Africa. And based on that, they named these uh, bodies of water, right? Yes,
0: yes, yes. I mean, your main port in, in a lot of this period is Siraf. And that is this part is the port of Persia so to speak Uh, and again on the Arabian coast you you would probably have to go down as far as Sohar uh, in Oman um, which technically you know if you want to cut it off at the Strait of Hormuz isn't on the Persian Gulf at all and then of course you have the usage occasionally in the early modern period of Gulf of Basra which is uh, again showing that from the perspective of the people calling it that you are sailing through the Persian Gulf as far as Basra so it's kind of a different naming convention uh, to what people are, are thinking about today
1: right uh, and just uh, talking a bit about geography because not many of our listeners would be familiar also with the region uh can you just give us a, a brief a sketch about the geography of the Gulf what we are talking about exactly um
0: I'm not sure quite I mean you're talking about, The body of water that has Iran on one side and the Arabian Peninsula on the other, and it's kind of like you know, um, Iraq of course has you know the small, very small coastline there, and then you've got uh, the Strait of Hormuz is a very narrow entrance where the Musandam Peninsula kind of juts out of Arabia. This is about on the border between the United Arab Emirates and Oman. But a lot of people, when they talk about it, and I followed this convention as well, also include what is sometimes called the Gulf of Oman or Sea of Oman, uh, which is then between Oman and the southern coast of Iran and where Muscat and Sohar are. So you have this sort of political geography and nomenclature. The Arabian coast, is fronting it mainly with deserts and salt flats. Um, You do have some, you know, the various oases like Khufuf Oasis. And, um, you know, um, uh, that's the main one, actually, (laughs) on the Arabian coast. Um, And then the Iranian coast has mountains very close to the sea. So you don't have... um, you, you, your your port cities on the Iranian coast, such as Saraf, tend to be on very, very narrow coastal plains, and you're coming down from the mountains toward the sea. So that is the physical geography of it.
1: Thank you for that. Uh, unlike the Gulf, which is quite shallow, the history of the Gulf goes further back in time, even to the Sumerians onward, uh, making it one of the oldest uh, bodies of water in terms of historical documentation. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to go all the way back to the Sumerians, but Mm -hmm. uh, the book starts, uh, let's say, between late antiquity to the beginning uh, of Islam, moving on to talk about the religious and ethnic landscape uh, in Arabia. uh, And on the... uh, uh, So in talking about the diversity in the region in the first two chapters, we have uh, an understanding that Arabia was diverse uh, in terms of different uh, monotheistic and non-monotheistic religions and also uh, was inhabited not only by uh, people who call themselves arabs so can you introduce us to the diversity uh, of the gulf during uh, the early uh, centuries of islam uh
0: yeah sure and this I divided into two separate chapters, religious and ethnic, because it seemed easier to to talk about them separately. Uh, and with religion, I just want to start by mentioning that there are a couple of neighborhoods in uh, places along the Arabian coast of the Gulf that are that 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 fig- into which the word "there" figures. This being the Arabic word for monastery. Uh, There's one on Bahrain, and I discovered another one on Tarut Island by Al-Qatif in in Saudi Arabia. And this almost certainly goes back to the idea that there were Christian monastic communities in some of these places, because uh, the Church of the East, uh, which is sometimes inaccurately referred to as Nestorian Christianity, and has, you know, I, I I won't necessarily here go into all the Christological disputes uh, over, because Christians had these disputes over what is the exact nature of Jesus and his relationship to God and how does that relate to monotheism and so on. Um, but, the, you know, the Church of the East was an important religious group in the Persian Gulf region during the Sasanian times. Uh, going back at least to the 400s, probably, and 500s, though you'll have some Christian communities there earlier. And in fact, it's even been suggested that this may have been the most important form of Sasanian influence, because the Church of the East was a distinctively Sasanian branch of Christianity, that uh, the Sasanian ruler Yazdegir II had sort of uh, created as a state as as sort of a state church similar to what Constantine the Great did when he uh, when he uh, endorsed uh, the great church in the Roman Empire. So you have in you have within the uh, you have within the region then lots of Christian communities, and there are a lot of writers that were produced and these would have influence throughout the Syriac-speaking Christian world. Uh, We found some of their writings as far as Central Asia. Um, You have their local saints and so on. And archeologically, we can see that this extends into the 700s. So it's not Islam appears and then you snap your fingers and suddenly everybody has become Muslim that there is definitely a process here, uh, a period of coexistence of Muslims, Christians, and then the other religions that were around. So you had Zoroastrianism, which was the, you know, maybe you might call it the official religion of the Sasanian Empire. It was the religion that certainly uh, is most associated with the Persian ethnicity uh, and the Sasanian elite. And, You have evidence of Zoroastrianism, particularly on the Iranian coast of the Gulf. Uh, They did not bury their dead because that would be seen as uh, polluting the earth with something that's decaying, and so they kept their dead in ossuaries, and we have these at some of the archaeological sites, uh, again, particularly on the Iranian coast, and there were Jewish communities here as well, which we know mainly textually. And these Jewish communities ultimately go back to the Babylonian captivity when Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans, sometimes called the Neo-Babylonians, carried off at least a portion of the Jewish population of Judah over where Jerusalem is and brought them to Mesopotamia. And even though there was a building of the second temple somewhat later (laughs) under the first Persian empire... um, many of them remained there and Judaism spread and Jews spread. Um, And this also impacted parts of the Gulf, Uh, certainly the lower Gulf. We'd find this in Basra in the early Islamic period, uh, but also then some of the the different, you know, uh, cities and settlements along the Gulf. So, you have this religious mix. You have Judaism, Christianity, and Zoroastrianism there in late Sasanian times, and then Islam is introduced into the mix, and um, there was a great, you know, you we see in uh, some of the textual sources lots of evidence that religious leaders were trying to keep these communities separate. So there, is, there are some canons of a particular Christian council that was held on Tarut Island in the year 676 that referred to, for example, not frequenting taverns owned by Jews. Um, and in the same way, in Islam, you have an interest in, okay, so who is Muslim and who's not, because we need to make sure that the non-Muslims are paying their proper taxes and that the Muslim population is, is not. Um but at the same time there's definitely at the the lower level and here i use jack tanus's concept of simple believers which is that a lot of a lot of believers were not theologians <laughs> to put it mildly but at the very least there's a spectrum of theological knowledge which goes from the experts the people who kind of understand a bit to people who really don't know anything um, except maybe their own local customs that they tie to a particular religion. And they're mostly drawn to symbols of sacred power, and they're willing to cross religious lines uh, if they believe that there is a particular holy person or a, a, religious, uh, a source of religious power. And this is really what characterizes the religious culture at sort of um, less elite social levels of a lot of... The medieval, I'd say the medieval world, really, uh, but certainly the medieval Middle East, and this is part of what we see happening early on with with again the stories of saints and, and and people you know willing willing to take you know Muslims willing to have their kids baptized as extra protection against demonic forces and so on. Um, that's the religious diversity piece. The ethnic diversity piece is just that ethnic groups are not primordial formations i i saw some i saw a, a, a tweet or well, i guess it's an x right now um of somebody last night who was saying that oh the reconquista was iberians retaking their peninsula well okay but after you'd been there for, for a few hundred years um Arabs were definitely Iberians by that time. So, you know, if the Visigoths weren't that long before. Um, and you had, you know, conversion of people and, and, you know, Arabization is a thing that happens where people who who might not have ancestors from the Arabian Peninsula will, will take on uh, the knowledge of Arabic and start to identify as Arabs and so on. My point is that ethnicity is fluid and we see some of this in the early Islamic period when some have questioned whether or not, you know, anybody would have recognized Arab as an ethnic designator and Persians and Arabs and the languages they speak. These are things that form somewhat over time. And there is a mix on both sides of the Gulf. It's not all of the, uh, all of the Iranians, all of the Persians on the Iranian coast and all of the Arabs there on the peninsula. That, that you know, when we talk about the, the Christians, for example, we know that many of the hymns they sang would have been Persian hymns, even though the, collo- the colloquial speech of a lot of the region was a form of Arabic. Okay. And there were... Uh, Persian speakers there as well, just like there were Arabic speakers in cities like Siraf, in cities like Rev Ardashir, which is near the modern city of Boucher. And in addition to that, you have people from elsewhere in the Indian Ocean, Okay, that when you talk about the Indian presence or the South Asian presence, in the Persian Gulf region, it is not just about modern guest workers. I mean, even you know, when you when you, you even in in a city like Dubai today, you find people who, whose ancestors had been there have been there for multiple generations, um, and we see this even as far back as the 1800s in a city like Abu Dhabi, uh, where there are references to people of Indian descent. But you have this in the Persian Gulf as uh, you have this in the medieval period as well. In every time period that there, insofar as the Gulf was connected by sea to South Asia and to West Africa, populations from these regions wound up in the Gulf in different ways. Uh, Some of it was via the slave trade, uh, particularly from sub-Saharan Africa, where you have the Zanj slaves who had actually a major revolt against uh, their conditions and the Abbasid authorities in the late 800s but also populations from India, who had been there since Sasanian times. Uh, and you continued to see kind of a refreshing of this population via, uh, again, sailors coming in, <laughs> uh, groups moving, migration is part of the medieval world, and, and we see these kinds of migrations. And so, when you picture the Gulf, again, it's not just, okay, all the Iranians are over here in, in Iran— all of the Arabs are over here on the Arabian Peninsula, Uh, Basra is formed, Iraq gets conquered and so on, you know, that kind of stereotypical history. There is a much more complex ethnic picture and much more diversity among the populations that, that means that we should look at the modern guest worker phenomenon, you know, not as something that that's new, but as the latest uh the latest example of long-term trends in the region that probably go back to again, as you mentioned, Sumer, because I know that in ancient Mesopotamia we have we know that there was trade with the Indus Valley and that the Indus Valley civilization of what is now Pakistan used weights and measures that I think were from Dilmun which is sort of modern Bahrain and Eastern Saudi Arabia, and that uh, a speaker of the Indi- what we believe to be the Indian Ocean language, this was a job you could get translating for them in ancient Mesopotamia. So it, it definitely goes further back than even the medieval period um, that populations have mixed along the shores, not only of the Gulf, but of the Western Indian Ocean.
1: Right. Uh, these connections have been there for uh, millennia, as you've mentioned. However, in the medieval period, interesting changes uh, take place by the establishment of empires uh, mm-hmm. on the Gulf. Uh, so we had the Sasanians who were, you know, further inland, but then uh, the Umayyads and the, and the Abbasid increasingly moved uh, to, to the coast, although they were ruling from uh, uh, inland capitals, whether it's Damascus or Baghdad. However, poor cities such as Basra, were established in the Islamic period and uh, they've extended uh, their tentacles across the Gulf trading uh, with South Asia, but also reaching as far as uh, East Africa and China. Um, And in chapter three, uh, we learn about the society of trade uh, during this period that you explore there. And uh, I would like you to talk about how uh, phenomena such as the rise of the Tajar class and the development of trade networks during this period uh, shaped the Gulf's uh, history?
0: Well, uh, one thing that has been argued excellently in a book by Fanny Bassard is the ways in which the Umayyads and Abbasids followed economic policies that really enabled uh, an escalation in long distance trade. Uh, for example, with an end to fixed prices it became profitable for people to to ship large quantities of goods from one area to another based on where they could get the best price. And this leads to uh, the rise of a distinct class of people called the tujar, which is usually just translated merchant. But I decided to go with trader here to separate it from, you know, because sometimes you think of a merchant, you can have a large scale wealthy merchant, but you can also have, you know, merchants in a bazaar. And, or, you know, like a souk, so to speak, where you're, you know, you've got like a carpet merchant or whatever. Uh, Maybe you can have a trader there too, and I'm not really doing anything. (laughs) But I felt the, I I felt like there was a benefit to using a separate word uh, to translate it. And these large scale traders start to have interests uh, across wide distances, and particularly then the Indian Ocean. Uh, where you would have agents in different places. This is, you know, you you mentioned uh, uh, before we began this conversation, you mentioned having taken a course in the Geniza, and the Geniza is a place where we find records uh, of Jewish merchants uh, with networks that that extend over wide distances. So uh, you see this is something that becomes part of the culture of the Gulf, particularly in early Islamic periods. The earliest, sorry, <laughs> particularly in the early Islamic period. And the city of Siraf arises uh, as the main entrepot because it was easier to put in there than to put into Basra. Basra is hard to get to because you got to go through some marshes and whirlpools and it was problematic. But Siraf and then Sohar, which is in modern Oman, become these huge entrepots. Uh, where people are trading goods over wide regions, where there is exchange happening, and you know when you when I talk about what the goods are um, exported from the Gulf, of course you have pearls and. This this was the main export from the Gulf, even into the 20th century before oil. Uh, And a lot of people uh, cut it off at the time of the Great Depression, when you have a rise of cultured pearls. Um, But pearling had historically been a major industry in the Gulf, and its pearls were among the most respected and could be extremely valuable. In addition to pearls, you have textiles, and you have pottery, too. Uh, And the pottery goes both ways. Chinese pottery. Because what the Gulf is bringing into the Islamic world is the exotic goods from the Indian Ocean, Uh, all of your spices, aromatics, uh, and again, pottery from different places. Chinese pottery was particularly valued because of its white luster. And and so you would find, we actually have a shipwreck um, that was found in modern Indonesia. Uh, that dates to the 800s and the bulk of its cargo was just tens and thousands, tens of thousands of pots um, that was potentially being shipped to the Gulf. We don't know for sure where it was going. And as an example of kind of how these cultures influenced each other, you even started to create cheap knockoffs in the Gulf itself. Well, we can get the white luster in some other way. Um, in, in later periods, they would do it by mixing quartz. I think in the early period, they were just using white glaze. But uh, all of these things were creating an integrated commercial unit that we can see by the ways that pottery is distributed around the region. This is where Seth Priestman's book that I mentioned in my further reading comes up, um, because he did a detailed study of pottery at, at sites all over the Western Indian Ocean. And you know, it you could track here how much uh, of the pottery is kind of like all over the place. You have a regional material culture, um, two degrees. In the Gulf, you're trading stuff from all over the Gulf. Uh, a smaller percentage will be from further afield. And then the similar is gonna be true in West Africa and the Western coast of India. So you're creating a regional trade network which involves the big merchants and the high-scale traders, but this comes to to impact uh, even people who aren't large-scale traders. Because if you are uh, of a lower socioeconomic background, you might be diving for pearls in the Persian Gulf, and when you're diving for the pearls, you're going. To, those pearls are likely to be traded all over the place. Okay. If you're a Muslim and you are washing your dead with camphor, or not washing with camphor, but you're using camphor in your funerary rituals, then that camphor had to come from far away in the Persian Gulf. And so you see these kinds of connections really sink deep roots into what life is like, what people's economic uh, where how people are connected to each other economically and so on.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, in, in terms of uh, the dynamics that shaped the trade in the Gulf and its trans-regional connections, as you've mentioned, across the ocean, um, shaped in many ways uh, the politics of the region as well, where we find uh, an increasing uh, commercial competition taking place between different uh, port uh, cities, mm-hmm. Uh, Across the Gulf, and in Chapter Four, uh, we read about these some of these transformations uh, during the Abbasid Caliphate and what came after. Um, What would you say are the main forces driving uh, factors behind these uh, changes?
0: Well, there is a collapse in the economy of the Gulf that happens really in in the 900s and early 1000s because the abbasid caliphate and its agricultural base are in decline at this point there uh, i mentioned the rebellion of uh, african slaves uh, called the zanj revolt that was in the late 800s and there was a lot of infighting among a group called the buyids which was a family confederation that wound up ruling a lot of iran and iraq in the 900s and early 1000s and so With all of this, you see, again, just kind of a general decline in uh, the Gulf. and At the same time, the Fatimids uh, established the city of Cairo in, I believe, 969. Uh, Maybe that's when they took Egypt. I don't know. But anyway, you get the idea. The Fatimids established the city of Cairo and moved their base to, to Egypt from North Africa, where it had been. So you're seeing a rise in trade in Aden and the Red Sea. Now this was not a permanent switch that completely replaces the Gulf because we see a revival by the late 11th century. And this is going to come with the Seljuks, who are a family of Turks from Central Asia. Uh, There was a lot of Turkish migration in the 11th century that may or may not have been linked to broader climatological shifts. And they wound up really uh, again following a promotion of uh, following a policy to promote trade in the region. And one branch of the family took a particular interest in what we call the Lower Gulf and Sea of Oman. So they are building up uh, Sohar more than it was, which suffers suffers (laughs) which undergoes a revival during this period. And they are also. Uh, working on the caravan trade across Iran to the ports of again southern Iran, so you see a revival of trade in you know the late eleventh century and then the twelfth century, and this is where we really start to see more. Well, I guess we start to see earlier. One of the points I make in the book is that historically, the the what has been the major entrepôt has what have been the major entrepots have come and gone. So we talk about Siraf, but if you're gonna go back to the actual origins of Islam, you would have been looking at Rev Ardashir, which is near Boucher, and at Ubula, which is the site of modern Basra, but used to be an independent city. And both of these were eclipsed by the rise of Basra and Siraf, and Siraf itself declined. And you start to see Sohar kind of ebbs and flowed. That's been a more consistent one. But Kish, which is based on an island, would wind up deliberately trying to take a lot of Siraf's trade and the trade of other regions and form their own commercial empire. Um, And different rulers would then try to control the trade in different ways. But if you're merchants, you know, if, if the situation becomes problematic enough to trade in a certain area, you'll just pack up and move your operations elsewhere. Okay. And... So you see this kind of coming and going, and because uh, unlike a lot of the world where agriculture would be your most important source of economic surplus, in the Persian Gulf it really is going to be trade, you are going to, sorry, (coughs) you're going to try and control that. Now, I know I I sometimes talk about this when I'm, I'm teaching, and I always point out to students that trade is ultimately harder to control than agriculture because you can't pack up a farm and move it to a different city, okay? You can't say, okay, I'm taking all my farmland and I'm gonna live in this other country. It doesn't always work that way. (laughs) Um, But you can do that with liquid wealth and movable goods, uh, such as the stuff you're trading for across the Indian Ocean, such as your pearl catch and so on. And so merchants have some say in, in terms of where they're going to have uh, the main entrepôt, And so the, the powers have to create favorable conditions for them. Um, but also, again, the states can compete with each other by what Suraf did, for example, is just make the route to Basra. Sorry, what Kish did, for example, is make the route to Suraf as insecure as you can uh, so that the merchants will stop going there and will decide to put in a Kish instead, where we will welcome them. Um, and then you try to take over Kish and run it properly. If you are maybe an Iranian power, there was a dynasty called the Salgarids. You get in this chapter, you get a lot, you get kind of a steady battery of, of, of new powers rising and new dynasties and so on. And then ultimately this leads to Hormuz, which is my concluding chapter. Because Hormuz used their powers as the choke point, uh, again entering the Persian Gulf. They would ultimately take control of Kish. Um they would extend their power further up the gulf and so on so that they become the big power and then just like again all the merchants are like okay we're doing business here now <laughs> so so let's go here and 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 establish our our big markets let's you know either live here or have a factor here locally who's going to be running our business um you know again the this is an underlying point is that these entrepos come and go through a variety of factors which would include you know what the what the the security conditions are like um how well you feel you can do business with a particular regime governing you and you know environmental conditions don't seem to have mattered that much uh because a lot of these places are brutally hot <laughs> um so you know, you talk about nice climate, but everyone just goes up to the mountains in summer if you can afford it. So,
1: right. With the exception <laughs> of maybe Siraf's earthquake, which yes, yeah. yes, yes, which led to the demise of Siraf. Uh, it's well,
0: right. it, it led to a decline. I don't think it was the complete demise uh, because you continue to see Siraf existing, um, but it wasn't rebuilt right. to the same extent as before. Yes. It was like a decline in stages.
1: Yes, and it's really fascinating to to follow this cycle of the rise and fall of different ports from the north mm-hmm. to the south and back again in the early modern period. Basra picks up again with the day trade, and the story goes on. Um, and uh, you would think that the the uh, the development of trade and uh, the increase in surplus would lead to the emergence also of a new class of, maybe uh, we can call them intellectuals, uh, who would foster uh, a religious scholarship, but also uh, all sorts of scholarships in the Gulf region. And we'll learn more about that uh, in the following chapter five, uh, which delves into the emergence of Islamic sects around the Gulf and the, uh, the formation of uh, sectarian identities between different Islamic uh, schools. Um, how would you read that history, but from the perspective of, uh, let's say, to think of that period and this phenomenon of, of, of the, 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 the the emergence of sex in the Gulf as a period of uh, an intellectual renaissance of some sort that uh, fostered uh, the production of manuscripts and uh, patroning them and patroning scholars uh, around the region? who penned uh, dozens and dozens of of these manuscripts, uh, uh, introducing, uh, let's say, their faith and defending it, and and and, and and in consequence, uh, really fostering a culture of learning. Uh, Would you agree with that statement?
0: Um, Partially, partially, because it's true, you always need some sort of patronage or some sort of uh, financial backing some sort of financial surplus that's going to allow some people to become religious scholars and to support the culture of religious learning. But I don't think this is completely new in the later medieval period, because you had to have the same thing supporting the monasteries and that culture of learning earlier. And we see examples in Assyriac texts of, you know, people donating date groves and and uh, the proceeds of Indian Ocean trade to monasteries. And certainly in Oman, um, you had the rise of what becomes Ibadism, uh fairly early. To the extent I even put it in my in, in chapter one because it was a, a, an important part of the Gulf religious landscape from an early period. And so what you do have after celestial, so you know, or the nice round year one thousand, what you do start to see about this time is. More of what we might expect to see in a Muslim religious culture if we had taken introduction to Islam at sort of a modern university or were raised in a Muslim culture today, where you have within Sunni Islam, for example, you have a certain extant schools of thought in Islamic jurisprudence, such as the Shafi'is, such as the Hanbalis, and so on, and we start to see evidence of them existing in uh, this particular region, Uh, At this time. Uh, The same way with Sufism. Um, If you think of Sufism today, you're thinking not necessarily of isolated ascetics, which is what we find in the early period, but you're thinking of Sufi orders um, with particular means of of trying to uh, approach the divine and so on. And we start to see these kinds of Sufi orders in the Persian Gulf again in this period. And These, you know, modern medievalists who study this stuff would say that for for all of these, traditional interpretations have pushed them too far back in time. So if we talk about the Hanbali madhub, for example, a madhub is the, the Arabic term for a school of thought of Islamic law, then this is named for Ahmed ibn Hanbal, who lived in Baghdad in the 800s. But he is not, I mean, the muvhub does go back to him, but it's not really a muvhub yet, <laughs> okay? It's, it's not really an organized school of thought with its own manuals and, you know, its its own judges and everything necessarily. That is taking another century or so. And so where we see it happening in the Gulf might not be that much later, than where it's happening elsewhere. Same way with 12-er Shi'ism, okay? The Buyids, who ruled in the 900s, probably had a a major impact on the formation and spread of 12-er Shi'ism. And then we start to see evidence of that in the Gulf, I think it's in the 1100s, where we start to see seals or or inscriptions referencing the 12 imams of the 12-er Shi'ites, which is today the dominant branch of, of Shi'ite Islam in the region. And so y- you start to have these sorts of what what today would be more familiar uh, approaches to learning and scholarship and Islamic knowledge and Islamic devotional practice and so on. Uh, rather than, you know, and, and it's probably significant that by this time there clearly has been a lot of conversion to Islam. Like we talk about the monasteries. There were still some Christians around, but it's telling that uh, Al-Muqaddasi, who wrote in the late 900s, mentioned that in the Arabian Peninsula, okay, which is obviously including you know Yemen and, and other non-Gulf places, Jews were far more numerous than Christians. So these monastic communities we saw earlier have disappeared. Again, they were probably at their peak in the 700s, some decline through the 800s, and we don't have them anymore by the 900s. Um, again, I guess that's what I'm saying is the Gulf is more, in some ways, religiously familiar uh, from a modern standpoint uh, in, in this period, in which you're also seeing the competition among uh, among the the, the the different would-be entrepôts like Kish and Hormuz and, and and Siraf and so on.
1: Right, and some of these uh, schools of, of thought have also established their own polities and seceded from the caliphate like uh, the 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 Qaramita or, uh, or Karmatians mm-hmm. in eastern arabia and the ibadis in oman so the formation of sects was also tied closely with the formation of new political uh, entities in the region uh
0: yes, yes if you were outside of what becomes the sunni consensus you would either be you know sort of underground which is what happens to some shiites uh or You would, you know, if it's dominating a region like Oman or eastern Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, what is now the eastern province of Saudi Arabia with the Karamita, uh, then you would be part of your own movement. What's interesting about both of these, uh, what's interesting about the Karamita is that, well, and really the Abadis have their origins as well, because the Abadis uh, start off. The, the Abadi's come out of the early Shurat, who are often called Karijites, though, though again based on the poetry, they seem to have called themselves Shurat. Um, they they start off the Abadi's come out of a reaction to extreme elements of the Shurat and early Islamic period, and the Shurat and the Karamita uh, share a critique of the high culture of the Abbasid Caliphate. Uh, and the Umayyads before them, if you go back that far, that there is, you know, too much luxury, that there's too much inequality, not enough strict adherence to Islamic practice, and so on. And they seem to wind up in the places they do. Uh, well, I, I shouldn't say that much is going to be separate, because I think, you know, you wind up in Oman, because it is much harder for uh, the caliphate to control. Okay, it, it, it's, it's at a distance. And Maybe this is kind of a recurring theme in in Gulf history as well, that you have major powers that are trying to claim the coasts of the Gulf, but they don't always succeed. Uh, And I would even take this back to the Christian communities, because one thing we see a lot in the Church of the East sources in Syriac is that the central authorities in Mesopotamia and even in Farce were trying to control Uh, this particular Christian province along the Gulf, and a lot of the peoples, like the lay elites and the monks there were like, yeah, we're good, we can do our own thing without your interference, (laughs) Um, which which would continue even until some ways into the Ottomans. Uh, But yeah, I mean, you do see, you see an Ibadi imamate that arises in the Gulf, most stably in the 800s, I think. Um, And then later, there is uh, that region of Oman comes under falls under a dynasty called the Nabhanids, but they did not rule in the name of Ibadism. They call themselves sultans, uh, and this is why we don't know much about them because they're largely left out of accounts of great Ibadi states. <laughs> no one really wrote about them. Um, so I guess, like I said, you're, you're you're talking about the links between religions and polities and. I think there is some there that that uh, sort of like particularly in the early stages, if you're starting a new messianic movement or a new puritanical movement, uh, or, or just a new movement with a particular interpretation of Islam, you you would you could wind up starting a state, but it doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily stay that way.
1: Right, and and the case of Hormuz might be uh, the counterpart to that, as we find in chapter six. So mm-hmm. the rise of Hormuz in many ways also a rise of uh, uh, cosmopolitanism uh on a wider scale uh, uh and on an island in which we have uh uh many religions many uh, ethnic groups uh, different groups of people coming together from across the indian ocean and conducting trade under the patronage of the Hormuzis. Uh, so who are these hormoses and uh in what way their history really captures uh the transformation of of the medieval Persian Gulf into the early modern period?
0: Well, Hormuz, by this time, uh, by this time, the Persian Gulf is uh, deeply linked again to the entire Indian Ocean world. And in a sense, Hormuz is just the latest entrepot that rises to power under a series of, of prominent rulers. And so one way that you see them kind of continuing uh, the long-term history of the Gulf is again this religious and cultural diversity. That you know there is a Jesuit priest uh, whom I talk about who commented that God was worshipped on four different days in in Hormuz because you had the Jews, the Christians, the Muslims, uh, the Zoroastrians have dropped out apparently at this point, uh, but then also uh, the Hindus. Okay, which <laughs> I'm not sure they would have called themselves Hindus at this stage in Hindu history. Um, but again, that was that was the term that he that was used uh by our sources talking about it. So people from India basically. So with this, you see the continuation of the long-distance trade and that ethnic and cultural diversity. Now it is in the Hormuzi period that Europe comes to be a bigger player. And my end point, which works well with the Past Imperfect series, uh, which is again, supposed to be focused on on the Middle Ages, uh, is about 15, uh, sorry, (laughs) the conclusion to my book is when the Portuguese uh, come and take control of Hormuz in the early 1500s. So, you know, uh, the Portuguese uh, took control of Hormuz and remember that Hormuz, had influenced most, they had some sort of control or influence on most of the Gulf Shores. And so through controlling Hormuz, the Portuguese uh, become the dominant power in the Gulf. And now you're gradually transitioning into a period of European powers and European empires. Eventually the Dutch East India Company will come, the Dutch and the Portuguese and ultimately the English will fight over Hormuz. And eventually Hormuz will decline and uh, Bandar Abbas, which is on the Iranian coast, will rise. Um, so it's, again, this sort of ongoing, ongoing story of um, the constant is long-distance trade and the cultural influences, the diversity of people that come with that. Um, and if there's a constant, it is the inconstancy of whatever your dominant power is. Okay, I'm not sure, one thing I was thinking about as writing this is what do I think of what are the dominant powers today? For example, the GCC states. Uh, I think that maybe the modern system of nation states means that, you know, you, you might not see Kuwait City, for example, <laughs> decline into obscurity and be replaced by, I don't know, Kaffee. Uh I don't think that's going to happen because I think that in the modern world, um, I think the modern states just have more staying power than a lot of their pre modern counterparts. Uh, but of course, we will wind up seeing what happens in, you know, come come back in 2500 and see what the, the next 500 years is like.
1: All right. It's all this question of scale, I guess, and, and how far <laughs> back and forward in time you would like to go. Yeah. Uh, I would like to ask you since you've worked on the As Tribe, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I want to juxtapose this question with another question about scholarship. The as have been uh, described by some Arab poets uh, in pejorative ways because of Mm -hmm. association with the sea, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, supporting that question with uh, the scholarship in in Middle Eastern studies and Islamic studies or medieval uh, uh, history uh, in, in the region and the position of the Gulf within that scholarship. Uh, do you think there are parallels here to be drawn <laughs> between how, uh, let's say, the Arabs uh, from the you know capitals of the, of the Arab worlds uh, perceive the Gulf, and uh, how historians have uh, included and excluded the Gulf uh, from their view of medieval history?
0: Well, that's an interesting question because we talked earlier about the construction of ethnic identities. And I mentioned, for example, that uh, some scholars now are even saying that, well, you know, nobody in, uh, say, the early 600s would have called themselves an Arab, that that the ethnicity is largely a creation of the Islamic period. And as it gets created, it is created largely based on Bedouin imagery. So... You look at the Arabian Peninsula as the homeland of the Arabs, and there is a great deal of internal diversity and lifestyles there. It's almost, most of it is arid, but you have, you know, what's happening in Yemen with the uh, more agricultural communities versus what's happening up in Najd uh, is, is going to be quite different. And what you see happening is that and and here i'm relying of course on on peter webb who has investigated arab identity um what you see happening is what he calls a bedouinization of memory where the ultimate arab is supposedly the bedouin this is true also bedouin speech is said to be the purest arabic so in this way it's combined with linguistic definitions of, of, of arabness and when you're trying to create a sense of where did we come from for Arabs in Baghdad and elsewhere, you are you are relying heavily on Bedouin poetry, Bedouin themes, and so on. When I was working on my El-Azd book, I was I was struck by how much less poetry by Azdi poets is preserved than, say, by Tamimi poets, because the Tamim, at least in the 600s, would 500s or 600s would better fit your idea of of nomads, (laughs) Um, even though, of course, you had huge settled oasis communities among Tamim as well, than would Elazd, Because Elazd would be in the mountains of Western Arabia in agriculture. They'd be in Oman pursuing a lot of agriculture in the wadis. And of course, they would, uh, in Oman, close to the coast, you might have also taken up uh, maritime pursuits, such as your pearling. And these, this kind of poetry seems, you know, assuming they wrote poetry, which I think is a safe assumption, it doesn't seem to, the, the, the collectors of the Abbasid period don't seem to have been as interested in preserving it. So I think in that sense, um, yeah, it's a very interesting question because right there you talk about, you know, how did Allah figure into the broader historical memory. And in Arabia, Well, this is leading me all sorts of directions, because they definitely figure in genealogically and narratively, because you have this whole story of the scattering of Alezd, which is, you know, populating, they're used as a connecting link when you're trying to see, okay, we've decided all the people in the Arabian Peninsula are Arabs, now how do they fit together, and the idea of Ezd leaving Yemen with the bursting of a dam to go to Oman and all sorts of other places is, is, is a narrative that allows you to fit lots of groups into Arabness. Um, but also in terms of like actual sort of like, you know, what are the battle days of al Because you've got these these stories of of pre-Islamic battles. There aren't as many for al as you would have elsewhere. And the main source is one that's just based in Oman. It, it's attributed to a, 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 an Omani al-Tabi uh, and is called just Ansab al Arab, but you know you you don't necessarily have as much in in the genealogies and pre Islamic accounts that are being written in, in Baghdad and Damascus and elsewhere. And similarly, when you think of the main Abbasid period historical chronicles, you don't find as much about Gulf events. Um, Tabari is always very focused on what's happening in Iraq, Iran, and maybe Syria. And he famously doesn't say as much about Egypt either. And so is that is that because of the same thing or is it just that uh, the things the historians were interested in were the religious and political events and we don't have as many of those happening in the Gulf? Um, I think... I think that um, when I think about the people who are writing history, the the Arabic histories that are our main means of of, of creating a narrative for the Persian Gulf, I think it's their, their interests tend to be in the politics of the caliphate and the religious events that happened there, and I think that going back to al again sort of like the lack of a poetic corpus because they weren't Bedouin and they were even lambasted for not being Bedouin that you know they didn't have they didn't have ancestors and goat hair tents and so on. Um I think these are somewhat different but you're right it's interesting that they're
1: complementary. Right I, I guess what I'm trying to say in a nutshell that um just like the yes, we were not considered to be proper Arabs also mm. the Gulf is is not proper Middle East uh, for the mm. historians until uh, Arab nationalism comes in and mm. <laughs> include the region no. the broader historiography of the Arab world um it could be that could be uh thank you for this uh, wonderful conversation uh, in which we explored uh, the world of the medieval uh, Persian Gulf and mm. uh Lastly, the book comes with a useful further reading list and a timeline to navigate the major historical events in Gulf history. Uh, and we haven't, uh, we talked a little bit about the sources. Um, if you were to give an advice to graduate students who are listening and interested in pursuing uh, projects uh, pertaining uh, to this period in Gulf history, what are some of the sources uh, they could uh, resort to in exploring Uh
0: well i think from the standpoint of primary sources then you have to be prepared to particularly for the medieval period anyway uh to grab stuff from a lot of different places okay you're going to have to bring out your archaeology you're going to have to to you know find very often scattered references and texts and you're you're going to wind up combining stuff from a lot of different places uh one I talk a lot in, in one of the chapters about a particular Mongol period merchant named Jamal Adin Tibi, and a lot of his early life actually comes from references in uh, chronicles from Mamluk, Egypt, <laughs> okay, which is not where people, you know, there's been kind of a revision of his understanding of his early life, because I get, you know, previous generations of, of, of scholars working on this had not thought to look there. So... Uh, you're you're going to have to you're going to have to cast a wide net across both Arabic and Persian, and material culture as well. And the other thing I would say in terms of modern stuff, and of course, when I say this, I guess I'm targeting it mainly at Western academics, which is don't ignore the work that's being done in Arabic and Persian, because. I, there are, this is where you have some important studies and particularly very geographically aware studies, uh, for the Arabian Peninsula. Um, but you, know, you, have got a lot of good work that's been, that's been done, uh, by Iranian scholars on Qish and Hormuz, by Arabic scholars on various locations. And some of this is connected to, you know, what is the, the origin of the modern GCC states, uh, you mentioned i i have worked with uh, the Kazama project um in kuwait which is uh, a mainly archaeological project uh that is investigating the the early islamic landscape around kuwait bay and i was brought on to provide historical context and what i found is that you know kuwaiti historians have already done a lot of work there okay because there's sort of a, a line that that people draw, not unreasonably, from uh, the, the settlement area of Kavama to modern Kuwait, being in, in roughly the same geographic location. And so, you know, you always, you know, it can be hard to find some of this stuff. Uh, because you don't have Arabic presses. Like I can look, I can go to the website, I can Google Cambridge History of Islamic Civilizations, and I can find all their publications. You can go to Mesa, you can see the book displays and all this stuff. But for Arabic and Persian, this stuff can be harder to find. But uh, for these topics, it is often worth finding. So that's my other piece of advice.
1: Thank you. That's very useful. And indeed, uh, with the digitization of all of these texts and their availability, uh, you really can cast your your net wider and mm-hmm. uh, and and bring in different uh, also disciplines and and trying to pursue this history. Yeah, uh, thank you for that advice. And uh, finally, we like to ask uh, the authors about what they are working on now or hope to work on in the future. Would you like to share some of that with the listeners?
0: yeah i'm in the process of finishing uh, of of you know finishing up uh current things while also exploring new ones i you know i have a a book chapter i have to write because the Cosm Exca- the Cosm excavations finished in 2014 but haven't been published yet and hopefully that will happen soon but i also have have sort of a regional overview chapter to write there that's going to link uh, Khuzestan in southwestern iran with what is now Lower Iraq and then Northeastern Arabia, and try to look at that as a cohesive region to contextualize those excavations. And I'm also trying to find more that will allow me to approach a theme that I think should be important in Gulf history, but hasn't been done at least for the medieval period, and that is more environmental history. One thing I've been doing here, there is one, one unique source we do have is the Diwan of Ibn al-Muqarab, who is an, a poet from the early 1200s in the vicinity of what is now Qatif and Hofuf in that region. And the most recent editing of his work is in seven volumes by the Saudi Arabian scholar Abdul Khaliq al-Janbi. And I've been going through that with an eye to say, okay, can I do anything with environmental history here, combining it with archaeology? It's not fully leading anywhere yet, <laughs> I have to admit. Um, but that's something I would like to explore, and possibly also then taking more recently, um, looking at issue it, it, <laughs> with with climate change being an issue. I have to think about so so what are the you know what are the means of staying cool in some of these territories that were hot, even by standards of, say, Iraq, Iran, Syria, further north, Uh, and and just trying to find things maybe from travelers' accounts and so on, Um, but also resource use. Uh, To what extent, I've wondered, is part of the shift of Antropos from one region to another possibly using up environmental resources in that area? There's a question I have. I don't know the answer. Uh, But yeah, these are some of the questions I'm thinking about right now.
1: I'm glad you're picking on these lines of research. And uh, I I like the book of uh, The Decline of Iran Shahar. And I always, when I read it, I think about the Gulf and I'm like, somebody needs to extend this narrative to the Gulf. So I'm glad you're uh, following that. And uh, thank you again for uh, sharing your insights and introducing the listeners uh, to the medieval Gulf. And uh, thank you for the listeners. And I recommend them to uh, pick up the book. It's quite succinct. It's 140 something pages. And it's a quick- 126. 26, even even shorter. So you have (laughs) no excuses. And it gives you really a good uh, overview of the medieval Gulf history. And every chapter uh, could be a, a research project for students who are listening as well. And it's quite accessible and and useful uh, to start learning about uh, the medieval Gulf history. Uh, Thank you, Brian, and thank you for the listeners. Uh, And today we explored uh, the medieval Persian Gulf published by ARC Humanities Press. This is your host, Ahmed El mazmi Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.